A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verse 24, through chapter 19, verse 20. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was proficient in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was accurately speaking and teaching things about Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greeted, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now it happened that while at Apollos, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, on the contrary, we have not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, having discussions and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took the disciples away with him and had discussions daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that Handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to use the name of Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I order you in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. Now, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, doing this.
But the evil spirit responded and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know of Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit pounced on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Also, many of those who believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they added up the prices of the books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Let's open up in prayer. Father, we come this morning to you to hear your word, to preach your word, to be full of your spirit. And we praise that very last verse that we read, that your word would prevail and increase mightily among us this morning. We pray through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so I started last week with dividing up, not doing a full chapter. And look at where, look where we're at. We're not doing a full chapter again. And this will probably be an ongoing problem where I could have made it easy and just kept to the chapter breaks. But, but then we got to go through a whole new, another riot scene if we continued the chapter. But anyways, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts and we're particularly looking at how Jesus' great commission in Matthew, how Acts 1.8 and, and leads into the mission of the church. And so to go over it every week, Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus Christ, before he ascended, the last commandment to the disciples uh, said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so I've been trying to outline or give a, um, an Old Testament prophecy, an Old Testament passage that points to the same thing. And I was actually making an outline last night for a handout. It's usually my notes that are four, five, six pages, and I just take out the stuff you don't need to see on your, that you guys don't need for notes, and I condensed it down, and I looked in, and I was like, wow, this looks like a terrible outline, <laughs> and it just didn't even make sense to me, um, which doesn't normally happen. Or, and so I didn't have an outline today, but the Old Testament passage we'll look at later is Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, so you can have that ready, and we'll have it on the screen also. And, and so as we're looking through the book of Acts, we're not just looking for the pattern of how Christian discipleship is supposed to look, how church building is supposed to look, how, how Christians are supposed to look, but we're looking at what God was, the culmination of the inception of the church at the day of Pentecost, and looking at how all of the Old Testament was leading up to that. And so scripture primarily speaks of two covenants. Um, and that's, we even divide our Bibles into two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Testament Covenant, same thing. And so when Scripture speaks, primarily speaks of two covenants, and they'll talk about, the Scriptures will say the Old Covenants, uh, or the Old Covenant referring to the covenant of Moses on Mount Sinai, where the law was given. Where if uh, you remember the scene, I believe it's, it would be Exodus uh, eighteen nineteen because Exodus 20 is the 
giving of the tablets where they were on Mount Sinai surrounding it, and Moses went up, and some of the elders went up partially, and they had to gate around the entire mountain so that no animals would get through, and, and nobody, they, they heard the thunder, they heard the trumpets, and all of Israel said, we heard the sound of the Lord, uh, you go, Moses, you go up there, you go act on our behalf. Um, they saw the fire, and that was a, a covenant where the law was given, and that was a necessary covenant. There are other covenants with, it speaks of Adam having a covenant, the Noahic covenant, the covenant made with David, uh, Phineas, there's various other um, subsets of the covenant or outreaches of the, of the covenant, but mostly in, op, in maybe juxtaposition, they put the new covenant as a, a covenant where you get the Holy Spirit, where in all of the old covenant, you had the law, but you had no power to do it. And that's generally the storyline of the Old Testament. Uh, people stink. People do not fulfill the law. People are given the law. They're poured out with grace uh, from the Lord, and then they don't have any power to fulfill it or don't have a new nature to f- fulfill it. And so all of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament is just a huge storyline culminating in the day of Pentecost when people are actually doing what the Lord commands, and it's actually going to be a steady increase instead of uh, various... You might see like a, a slight increase in the Old Testament. Like, oh, they got a king and he's righteous. And like, oh, wait, no, he's not. Uh, he's very wicked. And then, and then you get to David and there's a, a good king. And then pretty much every king after that couldn't keep up with it. And so the whole culmination of the Old Testament we're looking at and, and what Jesus is saying in Acts 1-8 is this is what all of the Old Testament prophets were pointing to. Not just Christ in his ministry and his death, burial, and resurrection, but the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people. And so we're going to look at that today quite a bit. And so um, one place that if you want to reference in, or want to look at in maybe more full in the Old Testament where that's prophesied is Daniel 7. Where uh, I'll just read verses uh, from Daniel 7 verses 14 and 27. And to him, being the the ancient of days, is given to the Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And that goes on, skipping to verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And this is exactly what Christ came and was preaching, that the Father, the Ancient of Days, was handing over the kingdom of God to Jesus Christ, and he was going to rule in his ascension and pass on that kingdom that uh, his people, the saints of the Most High, would be given that kingdom, and that kingdom would expand and have dominion. And all nations, all peoples, would serve under that kingdom. And so this was foreshadowed this is foreshadowed over and over and over in the Old Testament. And um, because I'm going through a, 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 at a Bible college online, a, a Pentateuch class, the first five books of the Bible, I have to throw in out of compulsion uh, images on, on papers I'm writing. And it's a good way to halfway write a paper and, and, and use it as a, as a homework assignment. But, but even we see that the New Testament writers are pointing to this Old Testament promise as the gospel. So consider Galatians 3.8, where Paul's writing and says, And the scriptures, 
for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, this is what he said, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so the gospel to Abraham was a proclamation that all of the world is going to be blessed through the chosen people of God, through Israel, through uh, you know what we see in the new covenant in the new Israel is the church. And so all nations are going to be blessed through the church. All nations are going to be blessed through groups and communities of people who have the Holy Spirit poured out on them to advance Christ's kingdom. And that's kind of the pattern we're looking at in the book of Acts. And so uh, one fun way to look at that is, is what came to my mind this last week. If you think of how Abraham, as he was traveling and he was promised a land, he was given some outline structures of here's where the land is going to be. And then you know, eventually his wife Sarah dies and he goes back uh, to the, and he purchases the cave of Machpelah from, from Ephron the Hittite. And so even what we're seeing foreshadowed in the Old Testament is that through a death, there was a deposit or, or guarantor of a purchase of the whole thing. And so there's these foreshadowings all throughout the Old Testament, um, but this one in particular, that there was through a death that the land is going to be purchased. And so all throughout Scripture, we see that promise uh, especially through the Old Testament, that promise increases. And, and it's not just this one geopolitical place in a, in a body of Israel. It's going to be over the, the whole earth. And so when we get in today's readings, this is the fourth time in the book of Acts that we see people getting baptized in the Spirit. And so essentially, those four times correlate to Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And so I don't think that God is just using those as like, here's beachheads, and these people got baptized in the Spirit, and they started speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there was miracles and great evangelism, and people were repenting, and wild things were happening. And then we shouldn't really look for that, because that was just a, a literary theme that people in the future are going to use to point to that Jesus is going to, uh, people are going to, as we talked this morning, say the sinner's prayer all over the world. Right? Paul went in looking for, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Right? Do we normally, when we um, meet a Christian, if we're on campus sharing the gospel, and you know, people say, I'm already a Christian, or, or something, or, or if we run into somebody, we make friends, and we find out they're a Christian, is that our first question? Oh, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Is that how we respond? We say, oh, what church do you, what do you, what do you believe in? What do you, and we usually uh, get to know them, but... Paul was interested in, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And so um, that's, the, that's kind of the plan laid out in the book of Acts. That's what's happening. That's what we're here for, is, is to see that um, I believe that as, as some of the people, some of the figureheads in the first and second Great Awakening called that revival. And I'll probably use that uh, term quite a bit today. But that's, the, that's God's plan, is to see communities of people filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, living in communion with each other, worshiping the Lord, prophesying, speaking in tongues, evangelizing, repenting, uh, turning from idols, and that's what's going to go throughout the whole world, and that's what's going to change the whole world. And so, in that mission, uh, Jonathan Edwards, in his book On Revival, he described revival, um, or described the way of revival as, as an ocean, uh, the ocean waves crashing onto the beach. 
as in a revival of religion, repentance, people worshiping God, the spirit coming. He described it as uh, revival's coming. It's like a wave crashing on the ocean, and all you got to do is go out there and, and stand there and open your arms and get hit and probably get knocked down. During the second great awakening, Charles Finney, um, he described it as planting a field and reaping the harvest. As in, if you pray enough, if you preach enough on holiness, if you preach enough on repenting, if you preach enough on this, if you command people to uh, uh, do certain things, then revival is, is something you can reap from the harvest. And so that became very frustrating in that time period, uh, kind of after waves of the Second Great Awakening came, came through. That came very frustrating for pastors and people because they were doing the things that Finney had described and they were planting the seeds, but the, uh, the harvest never came or they had been getting frustrated or there wasn't a second harvest. It wasn't ongoing and sustained. And so as, as Reformed Christians, uh, we would hold to that the former is, is correct, what Jonathan Edwards called a revival of religion, as you have to stand on the beach and get hit by the waves. When God brings about a revival of a religion, his Holy Spirit comes with power, with, with glorifying the Christ, with repentance, and there's a lot of means of grace that are tied into that, but your job is to go there and get hit by the wave, Right? And so you can't make the Holy Spirit descend at the magic words. That's what the seven sons of Sceva were doing. If we, if we just say the magic words, we're going to have power to cast out these demons. And the, it's, it's a little unclear in the scriptures whether it was all seven that were overpowered or just a few of them. But either way, this demonic man just beat them up and told them, get lost, get out of here, go kick rocks. Uh, they had no power because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so it's not like they could have just said the magic words, recited some incantation, prayed a certain number of times, and done a certain thing, and then it works. That's a works-based religion. That's, that's not how it works. And so they didn't have the Spirit. And so what we want to look at today is the need for the Spirit and His works, and for works of the Spirit. And so if you turn to Ezekiel 36... Verses 24 and 27 says, I will, take from you the, I will take from you the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so Ezekiel is prophesying the same thing that Jesus had preached in his ministry, same thing that, that we read in the New Testament, that he is going to start with a forgiveness of sins. He is going to cleanse you from your uncleanliness. He is going to remove your idols. He is going to remove that heart of stone, that hard heart, and give you a soft heart to, um, to pour his spirit into and you will obey his commands, right? There's going to be um, all those things. And so, so the new covenant is what we, is, is, that's a good example of what we read in Ezekiel 36, is that people are going to just be gathered from all over the nations. It's not going to be just Jews. It's not going to be uh, one people group. It's going to be all people groups. They're going to be cleansed from their sins. 
He's going to give him a new spirit and a new nature. And so in this, the law never changes. When you see Paul preaching and when you see the, the New Testament literature, the law never changes. It's people's hearts that change. All right? God's morality never changed. It's the, the power to obey it. Your heart and your, and your position changes towards the law. And so once before the law was crushing and damning, now the law, the same law, is empowering and freeing. All right? It's uh, ironically... Um, Josiah mentioned this in, in his sermon this morning about preaching a full gospel is in John 3 when Nicodemus is questioning, a teacher of the law is questioning Jesus when he says, you must be born again. He's like, what do you mean? Like, what do I do? How do I, I can't do that. And Jesus you know, ends up saying that where the wind blows, it goes wherever it wants. You can't control the wind. It's not in your power to to get the wind going over here. It goes where it wishes, and so it is with the Spirit. And he says you couldn't even see the kingdom, you couldn't even perceive the kingdom apart from the Spirit. And so we'll see in our readings, how does this happen, and, and what are the means by which God ordains it? And so I think we can look, if you're still in Ezekiel 36, go to one more chapter, Ezekiel 37, which should ring a bell with the Valley of Dry Bones. And so I'll kind of just, instead of reading the whole thing, I'll just kind of recapitulate it for you, where Ezekiel is called out after he's prophesied to Ezekiel that I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit, I'm going to cleanse you of your sins, we'll take you from all nations. And one of the next thing God does is takes Ezekiel out into a wilderness, a Valley of Dry Bones, and he says to him, uh, son of man, like, can these bones live? And he doesn't answer. Yeah, if I just pray a little bit, and if I read my Bible every day, and uh, if I lay my hands on them, then they will live. Guaranteed. I got this, Lord. Sit back and watch. He doesn't answer. He says, no, Lord, you, uh, I would have just said no myself, <laughs> but I don't have the faith Ezekiel has. And he says, oh, Lord, you know. And so, but this is where revival happens. This is where God ordains life to happen, in the Valley of Dry Bones. That's why if you're following uh, through, through from Genesis into, all the way to Deuteronomy, God says that I am leading you out into the wilderness so that I could show you that, that you start to hunger, that you start to thirst. So I can show you that man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. He didn't lead them first into the garden or into a restored spot. He led them into a valley because I think God wanted to show not just how powerful he was, but to show the state and the condition. You have to realize that you're in a valley. You have to realize that you're in the desert. And it's going to take a miracle. There's nothing you can do. And so... God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to them, and he says, hear the word of the Lord, right? Ezekiel is going to go to a bunch of dry bones in a desert place, and he's going to speak, and God's going to ordain that, that some life would happen. And then he says that after he's going to prophesy, God's saying, I will put my spirit or my breath into you, into the bones, and you will live. I will cause sinews, I will cause flesh, I will cause skin to cover you. And you shall know that I am the Lord. 
So Ezekiel is doing the prophesying. He's speaking the word of the Lord, and God is doing the work. And so um, I don't think, I, well, I, well, I'll start with, I do think God could have just done it and, and left out Ezekiel. That's totally possible. He did, he did it once uh, in Genesis with Adam, right? He's done it before he could do it again. But what he ordains is that we would participate in him and that there, there wouldn't be life apart from the preaching of the word. And so as Ezekiel prophesies to the bones to come together, it starts building flesh and sinews and, and their skin. And he says, but there's no breath, right? There's no life in them. It's just a bag of flesh and bones. And then God says to Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath or the spirit to come. Um, and then all of the, uh, the once dry bones that are now people stood as a vast army. And he uses the language as an army. And so what do we see in, in this chapter in Acts? When Paul's at Ephesus, we see the same things. That we have these approximately 12 disciples who have been taught about John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, which is saying, you can't do this, right? Go through the Ten Commandments and list all the, all the commands. You can't do this. You should be doing this. You need to repent. Turn from your wicked ways. You are doing evil Turn around, right? It's almost like a warning. And so, um, so they had heard about John's baptism, but not about being baptized in Christ and not about being baptized in the Spirit. And so the reason I left the section about Apollos, because Apollos was in Ephesus, and then he's in Corinth, and then Paul leaves Corinth and goes to Ephesus. And um, I'm not quite sure if they crossed paths, but... Uh, Aquila and Priscilla cross, cross paths with Apollos, and it seems like he is also only acquainted with the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance. But it says that he had been instructed in, in the way more accurately um, and even spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So I don't know if these apostles, or I'm sorry, these disciples at Ephesus had learned from Apollos, but it doesn't say that Apollos got baptized in in water, um, although if he wasn't, I'm sure they did, but they don't mention it. And it says that he was fervent in spirit or fervent in the spirit. So he might have, they might have learned that from Apollos or they might you know, learn it from another itinerant ministry. I'm not sure, but Apollos does immediately go preaching in the synagogues afterwards. And so whatever they did with Apollos, they took him aside and instructed him more clearly. And then he was reasoning pretty accurately concerning Jesus in the synagogues against the Jews. So anyways, at Ephesus, I don't think these disciples had actually heard the gospel. They probably had a very works-based approach of constant repentance, of constant beating your own flesh down, constantly trying harder, right? They had never heard of, never heard the gospel, it doesn't seem like. And so quite frankly, you can't come to Christ apart from the law, Galatians 3.24 says that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. And so you couldn't get to the gospel without the law, without a preaching of repentance, without, without what John Cain preaching. But it's a very sad state to be left there, that you have to keep repenting, as in your own works. You need to try harder. You messed up again. So you need to fix it, right? That's a... And you can, you can see the effect that it had 
uh, in Ephesus, there was about 12 people. I don't know how long they were there, but they didn't grow very much. Try, try starting a religion where you come in and you just uh, tell people all about what they need to repent of, and they just need to keep repenting and, and keep changing and, and trying harder, right? Some people are going to get burned out and, and leave, and uh, the people that stay might get to, might get to the gospel eventually, but, but most people won't even... Most people won't even stay. And so, not just because their numbers were small, but uh, look at the effect it had on the surrounding culture. None of these things that we see coming after that, where there's prophesying, speaking in tongues, manifestations of the Spirit, large communities repenting and burning their witchcraft books, none of that happened before they had received the Spirit. None of that had happened before Paul came and preached the gospel. And so it's a very sad state to leave people in a constant try harder. Now, you do have to get to that state first to receive the gospel, to receive grace. And so, but you can't make, in this sense, you can't make the Holy Spirit fall on anybody. You can't just command the Holy Spirit and and write your slip to heaven and and ask him to come down at 1230 because that's a good time and that's when he comes. Um, you, can't, you can't direct the Holy Spirit like that, like, like Jesus says. It's as the wind blows. That's how the, how the Spirit goes. And so you can't even do it with enough preaching. You can't even make the, the Holy Spirit's not obligated by any of our works. The Holy Spirit does, as we see, he uses Paul's preaching, right? As, as Paul preaches the gospel and teaches them about the baptism of the Spirit, they, he takes a step of faith and prays and lays his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes powerfully, and, and awesome things happen. But he did not make the Holy Spirit do that. And so that's because it doesn't rest on the, our faith and our works. It's not about how hard you try. It's always by faith. Romans 1.17 speaks pretty clearly on this, that for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or beginning and ending with faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And later on, he says that anything not done in faith is sin. And so, what same thing that was going on with Ezekiel and with Paul throughout the entire book of Acts is, we do what we're responsible for. We have to preach the gospel faithfully. Ministers' job is to preach, admonish, exhort, rebuke according to the word. And it's God's job to kind of do the rest. Right? God will ordain preachers, God will ordain ministers to bring about revival, to bring about new life where there wasn't life, right? but it's going to be at God's timing. It's, it's, I would love to schedule that and, and post a sign out and says, revival, Sundays, 1030, every, every week. <laughs> right? Uh, right? It's, it's the parent's job to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to pray for their souls of their children, and it's God's job to do the rest, right? If you, if in any, in, in any situation if, that you have authority or you have a means of, of discipleship in, in your family, in the church, and in any other context, that if you try to make people act converted, right, um, in the sense of keeping to try harder and just laying on a bunch of rules, it's going to be a disaster, in your church, family, wherever, right? The, not that those rules are unnecessary, right? We read that the law is good, 
it is, it is very good, but is, you have to look at, is someone's position towards the law receptive? Are they actually able to keep it? And Josiah spoke very well this morning. And so a good example of that is, look at Psalm 69. This is one of my favorite psalms, or at least the first part. This is a psalm of David. He says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And so David's describing a situation where someone's just in a vast deep waters. They, they can't stand. They've been yelling for God. They've been swimming. They're kind of just doggy paddling out there. And they're getting tired, and it's been a while, and he's crying out for God. And either God saves him or he doesn't. Either he sinks and drowns and dies or God saves him. That's the only options. He can't, he's trying to stay afloat, and that's where it's at. And so that's what, what David's doing is, is he's crying out. That's where the, God's trying to bring you in a point of faith. That's where he brings revival, not until you get to that point, right? Either God saves him or he doesn't, and that's the way it is, and get used to it, right? Uh, that's, where God, that's why God brings us out into a wilderness. That's why he goes out into a valley of dry bones, because what am I going to do? I'll do what you tell me to do, God, but what, 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 what power do I have, right? He pours out his spirit in a dry and thirsty land to dead people, people who are thirsty, people who don't have water, people who aren't living, right? That's where the Lord brings revival. That's where he loves to pour out his spirit. He brings people, he brings individuals, families, congregations, to a point of crying out to God in faith. This is what we need. We need you to act. We have no hope apart from that. And that's a blessed place to live. But we're, if you could do that your whole life. But as fallen humans, we normally have waves up and down. And we have, spirit, or we have times where our spirit is dry and thirsty. And he's reminding us to cry back out to him. Cry out to God. Right? He brings to revival to people who need reviving. And so what are the effects? So back to John 3, where the wind blows it wishes, and you hear its sound. Right, If the wind blows, you see leaves moving, and I can feel that the wind is blowing north because of the trees, and, and I can see the effect, but I don't see the spirit. The same is true if in a tornado. Uh, if a tornado comes, um, I can see, I know there's a tornado because there's a house swirling up in there. And it's getting carried away. But right, you have no power to control it, but you see, the, you see the effects of it. And so what do we see, again, in this section in Acts with Ephesus? We see people getting baptized in the Spirit. There's, there's preaching that preludes that. People getting baptized in water. People getting baptized in the Spirit. Obviously, there's signs of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues, prophesying, miracles. Now, what's interesting... Uh, Obviously, people were casting out demons. The Jewish people were trying to be exorcists and cast out demons. It doesn't say where that demonic guy who beat up seven guys went, if he ever got the demons cast out of him or not. But maybe, uh, maybe one of the disciples ministered to him or not. But, but they were surely casting out demons. And then there was repentance. 
right? The, the people who became Christians turned from their sins, got baptized in Christ, got filled with the Holy Spirit. The Lord was pouring out such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that it says they brought all of their witchcraft books and tossed them into the fire, right? Now, there were some things when I came to Christ that I had, I literally burnt on fire because I was like, this is just, I don't want, it's an effigy. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to, it's an image of, I don't want to live this life anymore. It's not, I'm going to put these books over here and we'll, when people come to my house, I'll remind them that this, I wasn't a Christian when I read that. And it wasn't like that, right? There was a total burning. And a lot of people like to figure out the, how much money that was. And it was probably millions of dollars or that was last year with inflation. Now it's like $6 billion, $6 million. <laughs> and, and so either way, it was a large sum of money. There was a huge life change of, of we can't go back. We don't have the books. We can't do this anymore. They're getting burned to the ground. In the same way you see in the Old Testament, constantly uh, uh, God's calling Israel to, to burn the idols. Don't try to reuse the wood or reuse the gold. Just burn it. Stand there and watch it burn. Get rid of it, right? There was large amounts of repentance. And so what was the effect? Well, verse 20, as we ended our scripture reading, says, So that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we start with preaching and we end with preaching the word, right? In this section of as, as God is ordaining ministers, you know, fathers, heads of households in your family, whoever is the head of household to, to preach, to teach, to instruct, ministers at the church, you know, someone, uh, any disciple you have in your life is, is given to preach the word faithfully so that the Lord, in his timing, would bring about a work of the Spirit in your life, right? I, my constant pray almost every morning is, Lord, just help me to be like stable, to have your Spirit to work for today, to do whatever I need to today. If I need to repent, if I need to get more in the Spirit, if I need to worship, what do I need to do uh, to live for you today? And so it starts with the word, with preaching. That's the means of God's grace that he ordains that the Holy Spirit would fall on people, that they would bring about repentance, bring about conviction of sin, bring about changed lifestyles. So, so for what? So that people would preach the word, so they'd bring about repentance of sin, changed lifestyles, so that people would get baptized in the Spirit and magnify God and prophesy, right? That's God's motives in the earth. That's what he's doing in communities, that we would be people who would be preaching the word, receiving the Spirit, that we would, I would hope that we could live a life of revival. That every week we come humble. We come yearning for God. Every week we come ready to worship. Every week we come ready to, if, if I need to ask for forgiveness of somebody, to say, hey, hold on. Let me go talk to this person first before, before worshiping, before doing anything else. So that what? So that we can go back out through the week preach the gospel in our respective authorities and, and areas of life, and come back in, worship God, get filled with the Spirit, do that day by day, so that the Word of God would prevail and increase mightily. Right? Because we could preach the Word until we're blue in the face, but without the Spirit, there's not going to be any life. Without the Spirit, there just is no life. 
no life in your life, no life in the church, no life in the family, or in any realm of life. And so, so we, we see that theme starting in, in Acts and continuing, and we have to be constantly reminded that that is our goal, to be full of the Spirit, to be people and individuals in a community full of the Spirit, right? To preach the Word so that it would increase and prevail mightily. And so, as we come to the table today, I want to read from John 14, verses 15 through 23. I'll give them time to get it on the board because I didn't mention that in my notes to them. John 15, I'm sorry, John 14, 15 through 23. I always like when the 930 kind of overlaps with the 1030, and a lot of what Josiah said this morning is, we must have compared notes or something. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens two weeks in a row. So John 14, 15 through 23. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you, and you will be in him, and will be in you. I'm sorry. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Because I live, you also live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whomever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. I skipped one verse. Then... Uh, Jesus answered, saying, If anybody loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if nothing else, homes are covenantal places between husband and wife, between uh, parents and children. Homes are covenantal. And if anything else, if nothing else, meals are at least generally covenantal. Right, uh, a home is centered or mostly around meals. There's a lot of other things. Maybe homes are different. My home's centered around meals. I really like I really like meals. Right, you come home and we we come home. We eat dinner. We fellowship together. We talk about our days. We we covenant together mostly around meals. And so the home is inherently covenantal, and meals are by necessary necessity covenantal. And so meals are intended to nourish, to feed to replenish their times of celebrations, right? And so their covenant, somebody has to prepare the meal, somebody has to eat the meal. Hopefully it's everybody eating the meal, but right, there's a, even in meal making in, in the home, there's a giving and receiving. There's, you know, in, in the nuclear family, uh, a husband or whoever brings home the paycheck, gives all the materials to the wife, the wife makes them and gives back. And it's this, the cycle of a covenant that I will give to you, you will give to me. And that's what we're, when Christ says that I will make my home with you in this meal is a, is a covenantal meal. There is giving and there is receiving. Christ is giving himself and we are receiving. And so um, you can kind of see this in, in Christianity where there's distortions where we come with anything that is less than joy, praise, exaltation, right? It is 
and we come to the meal all, it's like sad for some reason, or we have to pretend like we're sad about something to come to the meal. But that's not the house that the Lord is building. It's a house of praise. It's a house of worship. It's a house of feasting, right? Psalm 23 says that I'm going to pour wine into your cup, and it's just going to keep going, and it's just going to overflow, and I'm going to give it to you all the days of your life, right? And that's the meal that we're invited to in Jesus Christ. So come and let's dine with Jesus Christ.